Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Hi, this is Colin. Today on the show, the work of director Stanley Kubrick. Well, let's just think about it this way. Spartacus doesn't really prepare you very well for Lolita and Dr. Strangelove, and those don't really set the stage for 2001 and Clockwork Orange or The Shining. Kubrick is a guy who keeps reinventing and reinventing and challenging and making films. I mean, all the films I just named are kind of iconic. It is, or it was last week, the 50th anniversary of A Clockwork Orange. So we thought maybe it was time to re-air this show. We hope that you enjoy it. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Today on Afternoon Pro Musica, we offer you a full afternoon of the music of Strauss. No, that's actually not what's happening. Um, Instead, we're talking about Stanley Kubrick. Uh, And can't talk about Stanley Kubrick without playing that music, which you know is also in 2001. So, um, let's get going here. I, by the way, like a lot of times on a show like this one, I sort of wish I were a guest because I think I know something about it. That's not the case this time. I am, I think, you know, almost notably not a Stanley Kubrick expert. With us are David McKicks, who's Moore's Distinguished Professor of English at the University of Houston and the author of Stanley Kubrick, American Filmmaker. James Hanley is the co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. And before I go back to the guests, I have this theory that if I went to a multiplex, and I'm asking just sort of the average filmgoer, not the cineast, and I'm saying, who are some famous directors? I feel like they're going to say Spielberg and maybe Lucas and maybe Coppola and Scorsese. And, you know, those are some people that people would sort of just rattle off right away. Tarantino, 
but they might not mention Kubrick. But Kubrick, meanwhile, has directed, you know, really probably more purely iconic movies. If the definition of an iconic movie is a movie that people know lines from even though they haven't seen the movie. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Wendy, I'm home. I mean, there's so many of these movies where people who've never seen the movie can quote from it. That seems like the definition of a major director. So, David, because Kubrick's films are so different from one another. I mean, there's, you know, you mentioned all these films and it's kind of amazing how indelible and iconic each one is, but they don't resemble one another's films the way, I don't know, like maybe Spielberg or Coppola. Can you comment on that? Well, first of all, Kubrick seeded, he, he planned this when he made his movies. So you have to put them together. And once you start doing that, you can see some really interesting resemblances in a really mysterious kind of enigmatic way. The ending of Dr. Strangelove and the ending of Clockwork Orange. The maimed villain leaps back into life. The ending of Full Metal Jacket, for example, has its resemblance to these two as well. So those are just a couple of examples, but there are odd things like, for example, the gaze of the star child at the end of 2001, and then What's the beginning of A Clockwork Orange, his very next movie? We have the eye of Alex, the thug, Alex DeLarge, staring at us. It echoes the star child at the end of 2001. So, yeah, there are those fascinating resemblances. That I had not realized. Um, so, James, maybe you can comment on this, too. You know, as a, a presenter of films, you could say, well, next week we'll be showing a Kubrick movie. <laughs> <laughs> and that might not tell your audience all that much. Well, that is really interesting because people who were in cinema, people who were following his career were always waiting with great excitement. What was his next film going to be? And you would hear hints in the press that were things that, you know, the, the first indication was that somebody acting as an agent for him had bought a, a property, a novel or a story, or there was somebody doing preliminary research. So you'd hear hints of this, but there were long, long gaps. And so I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, he's, he's not as well known as he should be. But I think that the reason principal reason he should be more well-known is that his pacing of his films and the subjects he chose were really a representation of his personal intellectual curiosity and development. And I think that he, it's a sort of continuum for him during those periods where the movies didn't appear. And he worked for such a long time. Some people in the industry were annoyed with him, particularly MGM, of being a perfectionist when he was making 2001, MGM executives flew over from California to berate him for spending as much as $4 million on this movie and that they were going to cut the budget and they, this was really getting out of hand, him building all of these machines and like being so insistent on getting things right. And he was doing things like editing the film on 65 millimeter negative, which nobody else did. It meant they had to build special moviola machines to edit them. And I think that at that time, you know, MGM had no idea, but they were forced in a contract. They had a contract with Cinerama. They had to go ahead. 
But the fascinating thing is that at no time did I get any sense that Kubrick <laughs> was in any way discouraged from this. He just saw that 2001 was going to be a project that took a long time to get it perfect. And he was insistent that he would get it, his vision correct. And so that, I think, is part of the whole scenario of his life about following ideas and then really exploring them in great depth to come to a point where I think, for example, his last film, Eyes Wide Shut, is a masterpiece that is not yet recognized fully. Glad to hear you say that, James, because I can't tell you how many times when I tell people I was writing a book about Stanley Kubrick, they would say to me, what was that last movie of his? And uh, I'd immediately be catapulted into defending Eyes Wide Shut, which I also think is a masterpiece, although it took me a few viewings to get to that point of view. And by the way, we're going to get to Eyes Wide Shut towards the end here. We're even going to talk to someone who has watched it over 100 times. I assume we're going to talk to her from the day room of a mental hospital, uh, if that's the case. But um, Among Kubrick doubters, David, there's, I think, the most frequent accusation leveled is that there's something cold and clinical about his eye. There's a way in which the relationships don't generate heat. They generate interest, but maybe not heat. In your book, you do address this very specifically, but I want to hear what you have to say. It's a deliberate effect. That is, there is a distance, there is a remove from the direct emotion, the passion that you'd normally see in a standard Hollywood movie. Kubrick movies are not standard Hollywood movies. So you don't get scenes full of heart, scenes of heartbreak, scenes of anguished pathos. Kubrick tends to avoid all that. But you do have these volcanic emotions. You do have extreme passion. It's just that Kubrick is observing this emotion from something of a distance and reflecting on it. He's showing it to you in a very lucid way. And so that's a disturbing effect. But it's a deliberate effect, and it's there throughout his movies, I think. Yeah, James, what's your, what is your take on this? Is this an unfair complaint or just... No, I, I think that what David just said is very insightful about his films. I mean, this criticism about Kubrick was usually emerged in saying that he was cold and clinical and calculating, and he was deliberately making things hard to understand. But I actually don't agree with that at all. I think that, that 2001, for example, which was always criticized for that, is an incredibly passionate and disturbing movie, which mirrors his own disturbance about what it represented and what human, where human life was going and the curiosity about the rest of the universe. And I think that we are so used to, especially now, I think we're so used to filmmaking and generally a lot of art generally is is to be sort of immediately hits your emotions and you have immediate reactions and you tend to judge things perhaps too quickly and i think that one of the things the one of the results of what david was saying is that in this situation that distance actually creates time to contemplate the complexity of what might be going on here that is not necessarily about your own emotional reaction. It's about the disturbance in the in the folds of the universe, if you like. And I think it's every bit as present, and in fact, more intensely so in a film like Eyes Wide Shut. But it's also there in, in Full Metal Jacket, for example. Are those live rounds? Yeah. 
7.62 millimeter full metal jacket. Leonard, if Hartman comes in here and catches us, we'll both be in a world of I am in a world of So, David, one thing that you point out is that Kubrick may be intellectualizing certain things. He may, in fact, have some of that style that we just described. And 2001 may be, you know, a somewhat abstract argument, but it's an incredibly popular movie. I mean, he's made a lot of really popular movies. 2001, as you point out, was for that studio, one of the most popular movies ever, which I'm not sure if I were sitting there watching, you know, the final cut in some studio room, I would have necessarily anticipated. So talk a little bit about why a movie like that does become so popular. Yeah, this was a big shock to MGM, who, as James mentioned, was somewhat doubtful about the movie from the beginning, you know, of course, their take on it was that science fiction movies are cheap. They look cheap. They don't make money. 2001 was the reverse of this. It was not cheap, and it certainly did not look cheap. You know, it was a superbly artistic masterpiece, just a work in which everything fitted together perfectly and everything looked absolutely perfect. It was a triumph of design and of everything else. And so that was unprecedented. What was also unprecedented was that 2001 was really an art house movie. Yeah. In the sense that it made the audience speculate. You had to wonder what did that ending mean? Um, you know, what was going on in that scene? And it was the first major Hollywood movie in which that occurred. By the way, in the during the first screening, droves of MGM executives walked out. I think <laughs> And then, so Kubrick was distraught and he went with his wife to a hotel on Long Island. And, you know, she said he couldn't do anything. He couldn't speak. He couldn't sleep. But then by the next afternoon, the word came in that the under 30 crowd was flocking to the movie. And then soon, of course, it became apparent that they were seeing it again and again, often or, you know, almost all the time, we should say, under the influence of a substance, one substance or another. Yeah, it became a huge triumph and one of MGM's 10 biggest movies ever. I mean, James, I think another thing that's hard for us to factor for from this distance is we hadn't really seen outer space and spaceships really artfully depicted. I mean, there have been a lot of pretty bad science fiction movies, you know, that had rocket ships in them. But, you know, there was Star Trek on television, which wasn't visually particularly compelling at that point. There really hadn't been that much that took this kind of thing seriously. That's right. I think that is hugely significant. And it's hugely significant that it was actually filmed on 65 millimeter film and the engineers and filmmakers he hired to make those images perfect really knew what they were doing. One of the problems with many science fiction things is is actually not the actual setup or the models or whatever. It is the definition is poor and the perspective is wrong. All sorts of things are wrong. But he actually managed to create this sort of artificial universe that was really believable. And it coincided with something really interesting, which was the intent that was ultimately not successful, but it was very important at the time 
of the Cinerama process to try and transition from fairground type of this is Cinerama type of films to actual stories. And I can remember seeing a preview in London of 2001. And it the thing that first intuited that this was going to be different was the logo at the beginning. It's the only MGM film where MGM allowed a stylized modernist lion without a roar because he wanted silence. Kubrick wanted silence at the beginning. And when the curtain opened on this huge Cinerama screen, it was like, yes, now we see somebody who can really do it. And the film kept up with that. And the, 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 the technical quality was so good. And it touched on all of those things that were beginning to be in the public consciousness about computers, for example, and about space flight and about what if there was other life in the universe? Certainly no one could have been unaware of the very strange stories floating around before we left. Rumors about something being dug up on the moon. I never gave these stories much credence, but particularly in view of some of the other things that have happened, I find them difficult to put out of my mind. You're working up your crew psychology report. Of course I am. Sorry about this. I know it's a bit silly. Just a moment. Just a moment. I've just picked up a fault in the AE-35 unit. So I think we should take a break now. We're talking about the work of Stanley Kubrick. So we'll take a quick break and we will be back right after this. We're back. We are talking about the work uh, of Stanley Kubrick. We are doing that with David McHicks, uh, Moore's Distinguished Professor of English at the University of Houston, the author of Stanley Kubrick, uh, American filmmaker James Hanley, is co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. He's with us, too, as he so often is when we talk about these things. So, David, I want to just talk a little bit about the question of influence. So last night, I had never watched this before. I watched The Killing, which is a very early Kubrick movie from, I think, 1956. And you watch it and you think, oh, well, Reservoir Dogs. I mean, clearly, you know, this is something that Quentin Tarantino is very well aware of and has drawn from. Suppose by accident you do get picked up. What have you done? You shot a horse. It isn't first-degree murder. In fact, it isn't even murder. In fact, I don't know what it is. But the chances are the best they could get you on would be... Uh, inciting a riot or shooting horses out of season or something like that. Uh, well, you put it down. Could you make it sound real simple, you know, Pops? 5000 bucks for rubbing out a horse. Okay, Pops, how do I get it? 2500 a day, 2500 a day after the raise. Okay, crazy. Now tell me something. What's your angle, John? <laughs> they probably call the raise off, huh? And they won't pay off any of the best. Yeah, Come on. Maybe. But what my angle is is my business. And Nicky, 5000 bucks is a lot of dough, and that's what I'm paying it for, so nobody has to know my business. 
Sometimes it, there's something shocking. I read that David Chase, in creating The Sopranos, was very influenced by a Kubrick movie that was about a society with highly codified rules, the breaking of which could cause you to be put to death. But it's Barry Lyndon. I don't think a lot of people think Barry Lyndon, <laughs> think of Barry Lyndon when they think of The Sopranos. But maybe both of you, but starting with you, David, you can talk a little bit about where you see the influence of Kubrick showing up. I, I know that's a very large and long topic. But give us the short version. Well, you mentioned something quite interesting that is The Killing, which is a film noir. And like certain other film noir, it has a very recursive kind of backwards temporal structure, you know, very complicated. And this is something that Tarantino used in Pulp Fiction, in fact. But when I think of The Inheritors of Kubrick, well, there are some more obvious ones like Christopher Nolan, I think, who has a similarly sort of almost hallucinatory kind of crisp and lucid approach to the camera. Terrence Malick, who has, you know, if you saw The Tree of Life by Malick, you know that there's an episode involving dinosaurs there. So, you know, Kubrick with his killer apes at the beginning of 2001, it's the same kind of cosmic sweep, you know, and ambition. But also, I think maybe a film like Joker, which, first of all, with Joker, you think of Scorsese, I think, uh, Taxi Driver and King of Comedy are influences there. But uh, I think there might be a resemblance to A Clockwork Orange, too. Certainly, there was a resemblance in the reviews. The reviews of Clockwork were almost uniformly negative. And like, what is this thing? It's disgusting, it's plotting, it endorses violence. None of this is true. Go on, do me in your bastard cows. We don't want to live anyway. Not in a stinking water like this. Oh? And what's so stinking about it? It's a stinky world because there's no law and order anymore. It's a stinky world because it lets the young get onto the old like you don't. Oh, it's no order for an old man any longer. What's up about what is it at all? Men on the moon and men spinning around the earth and there's not no attention paid to earthly law and order no more. But you had similarly disappointed reviews of Joker, which I think is a terrific movie. Right. One of the early ideas for Clockwork Orange was that Alex would be played by Mick Jagger. And I think, you know, then you'd really see some resemblances just in the way that Joaquin Phoenix kind of danced his way through Joker. But yeah, James, how about you? It's sort of a bad question that I'm asking, because as we pointed out at the, the beginning, there isn't really exactly one Kubrick style that somebody can then inherit. But but where do you see the inheritance happening? Well, I think that he is a moving target throughout his career, and I, I definitely think he's influential. But you mentioned something interesting about Mick Jagger possibly playing that part in Clockwork Orange. I think that would have totally changed the nature of the film because of the status of Mick Jagger at the time. I think what is really actually interesting is how by using Malcolm McDowell, who immediately sort of created an aura from nothing right at the beginning, it was, I don't know whether Kubrick ever had that conversation. I can imagine that the distributor would love to have Mick Jagger, of course. And they also, I think all the distributors knew how prickly Kubrick could be. 
in terms of being told what to do. I mean, he was one of those very, very, very few filmmakers who got away with telling the distributors where to go and still got his money to do things. And I think that I hesitate to think of him as an iconoclast because he's not. He's really part of a mainstream of cinema, really, but a purist kind of cinema that really explores ideas manages to make an art film and gets it released through the massive sort of Hollywood machine and actually involves people in creating image and, and, and is influenced in, influential in culture. I mean, I think the Anthony Burgess novel of Clockwork Orange was hugely influential in the literary sense in its use of language and its, its, its whole invention of these characters. And then along comes Kubrick to make this film that it influenced popular culture in a way much more than just specifically cinema. And I think, you know, comparing with something like Reservoir Dogs, for example, to me, Reservoir Dogs is a, it, I liked it when it came out. And I, I find when I watch it now, I think it's sort of sensational and interesting as a milestone, but it doesn't excite me as something intellectually challenging and interesting. If I know what kind of guy you were, I never would have agreed to work with you. <clears throat> Are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you going to bite? What was that? I'm sorry, I didn't catch it. Would you repeat it? Are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you going to bite? Oh, Christ. Hey, look, you two Calm the down. Hey, come on. What, what are we on a playground here, huh? Am I the only professional? One of the things that strikes me is that the creators of Kubrick's source material often have kind of an uneasy relationship with him. So Anthony Burgess, who James just mentioned, he came to hate the movie Clockwork Orange. I think this is partly because he felt ripped off financially. He got like $800 or something for the rights. But he also said he went to see it in a movie theater with a lot of people. And he said, I realized not for the first time how little impact even a shocking book can make in comparison with a film. Kubrick's achievement swallowed mine whole and yet I was responsible for what some called its malign influence on the young. But, you know, you can make a similar point about The Shining. Stephen King really disliked that adaptation. But in a way, even people who read that book, The Shining, first are now imbued with the visual signature of the movie. It's unshakable. Nabokov said that the movie, that he viewed the movie Lolita with, quote, a mixture of aggravation, regret, and reluctant pleasure. So, David, there's a way in which, you know, Kubrick can take written material and make it crackle even more than it does on the page and sometimes kind of almost make the original creator uncomfortable. Yeah, that's I, those are three great examples, Colin. And I think it's fair to say that he realized a clockwork orange in the movie. Of course, he used an enormous amount of Burgess's distinctive lingo, the NADSAT, that the, the, the sort of teen uh, Russian-inflected slang that Burgess invented in the novel. Kubrick took that up and used it very much in the movie and the dialogue and the narration. But the visual style of the movie, and in particular the way in which the film of Clockwork sort of elicits in the viewer both disgust and, you know, a kind of reluctant thrill so that, you know, you're excited by the violence, but you're also repelled by it. That is, I, I want to go back for a moment to what James said earlier about how Kubrick wrestles with big ideas. And this is something absolutely crucial. And Kubrick was explicit about this. 
that there are so many movies in which you have the audience congratulating itself at the end for enjoying the the hero's decimation of the enemy, right? So it's like there's a bloodbath at the end of a Hollywood film and the, the brutality is kind of, you know, enlivening and glamorous and you feel good about it. You know, this could be something like Dirty Harry or Straw Dogs or your typical Western. Well, Kubrick strikes out against that in A Clockwork Orange. You feel very uneasy about your identification, if that's what it is, with Alex in Clockwork Orange. And Joker, of course, shares that same kind of weird, awkward ambivalence. Edith asks the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. But you don't listen anyway. I said, for my whole life, I didn't know if I even really existed. But I do. And people are starting to notice. But yeah, to, to get back to your question, Nabokov, the novel is different from the film. And at, at that point in 1962, Kubrick could not have made a film that really captures the full kind of scandalous aura of Nabokov's novel. Stephen King, as you say, I think uh, the film has overtaken the novel. And people now think of The Shining, even when they're reading the novel, they have in their head those pictures, Jack Torrance, Wendy, Danny. I think that's a really important point because, you know, if you're an author who's written a story and it has a particular sort of critical reception, if you like, it's a satisfying expression of your art as a writer. And then I think that any time a novel is taken by another artist and turned into something that uses the ideas that are then blossoming in a visual realm as well as in the ideas I think there are many, many writers who can't accept that, who find themselves very angry at what appears on screen. And that really it's a hijacking, if you like, of the image that existed before. Uh, but I think that the truth is that much as Anthony Burgess's novel was celebrated in a certain set, if you like, it was not a huge success to the point which, as you said, Colin, he didn't get paid much for the story. And I think that he was a, an incredible writer, an incredible artist. And I could imagine how he'd be challenged, but really also that sort of feeling of excitement about what was created, which was like a cultural milestone that bridged the literary and the visual. Yeah, I have to say that not only did I watch Malick's Tree of Life in James Hanley's lovely movie theater, but I also watched The Shining when it came out in 1980 there. And David, I'm pretty sure that the college students in the audience had taken some of those substances you were mentioning in connection <laughs> with 2001. But James, what I'll remember about that night was they thought it was a really funny movie, not just the, you know, one or two obvious <laughs> moments, but there, you know, one of the things you can't control is what an audience is is going to do. And it's a problem that novelists like Stephen King and Nabokov and Burgess don't really have to deal with. They don't have to watch people read their books. But, you know, James, that night, I remember thinking, I don't think this was anybody's plan to get this many laughs. (laughs) Well, I think it was Jack Nicholson's plan. I mean, (laughs) it is hilarious when in the famous baseball bat scene where Wendy is sort of flailing and, you know. Don't hurt me. I'm going to hurt you. Stay away from me. Wendy. Stay away. Darling, 
light of my life. I'm not going to hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. I'm going to bash them right the f*** in. <laughs> and that and a couple of other scenes, I think he is very funny. I mean, he's incredibly terrifying, but he's a kind of virtuoso improviser, comic improviser. So I don't know if I would have said, oh, The Shining, it's a very funny movie. But I mean, those scenes really do knock you out with their... Although, James, I, James, I do feel as though if I were Stephen King, I would sort of think, you know, I mean, if this is a movie or this is a story, rather, about a very ordinary man, you know, who's not even a particularly terrific writer, who is just sort of then catapulted into this really demonic world. Well, I mean, really, he starts out the movie and he's already Jack Nicholson. You know, I mean, yeah. there's nothing particularly ordinary about him. So the scary thing about like my dad, your dad, somebody we know turning into this monster. I, I don't know. I think that might be a little bit of a problem. Well, I think that that's the that lies at the heart of what I think upset Stephen King. I, I think that Kubrick's ability to actually tweak those things and and I think clearly encourage Jack Nicholson to be what he wanted to be. I think that he did the same with Malcolm McDowell in Clockwork Orange. And I think there are elements of dark humor that appear unexpectedly. And I think that Kubrick has enough discussions with his actors to be able to give them some room to do those things in the midst of being very anal about his control of certain aspects of it. I've been talking and thinking a lot lately, David, about the movie Rosemary's Baby, where it's clear that Mia Farrow's family, the family she has chosen, they are what is scary. You know, <laughs> the idea <laughs> that you marry somebody that you don't know well enough, and it turns out it's just, it just couldn't possibly wor be worse. And now it's so unbelievably awkward to have to admit that, you know, these are all Satanists or whatever they are. And, you know, in The Shining, it's less clear to me what's scary. Is it Jack Torrance? Or is it, I mean, to me, the scariest images uh, in the movie are probably blood pouring out of the elevator, you know, and maybe the, the twins. Come and play with us, Daddy. Forever. And ever. And ever. What's scary isn't necessarily Jack, but maybe I'm reading it the wrong way. These are great questions, Colin. It seems to be a horror movie that is different from other horror movies. And I think you put your finger on one reason. A movie like Rosemary's Baby, and in that way, although of course these are all different movies, but they all share this, that the family is a family horror and the family is somehow united in horror. So you have that in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, very different movie from Rosemary's Baby. But they, they share that, that there's a kind of coven or a clan aspect to things. The Stepfather, one of, I think, the most frightening horror movies, or The Hills Have Eyes. All of these are, there's a sort of collective horror in which you have a band, of a sort of a familial band of people or monstrous entities, right, who have somehow taken over, you know, they've turned things upside down. So that spilling blood and killing people, slicing them open is what you're supposed to do. So we have none of that in The Shining. We have instead this intense pitched battle between the husband and the wife in which Shelley Duval in a, a magnificent performance proves to be 
remarkably resourceful or surprisingly resourceful as she's described and she actually gets the better of the husband so the family is very divided there and jack really is outclassed he's outmaneuvered in every possible way i'm gonna go i'm gonna try to get sammy down to sidewinder and the snowcat today I'll bring back a doctor. You know, there's a, a way, and it's it's in David's book, but particularly some of the background information about what was done to Shelley Duval. And maybe we'll come to that in a second. But James, there's a way in which her kind of her frailty, her skinniness, her vulnerability, you know, there's a way in which I think other actresses who might have projected a little bit more obvious strength were considered and then not used. There's something about Duval's seeming inability to rise or unlikeliness of rising to the challenge that she's going to face that's especially poignant and powerful in the movie. Yeah, I agree. And I think she knew how to use that, her appearance and her manner very well, because I can't think of anybody else who quite projected that sort of image of vulnerability, yet she is a very strong character. There's something about her face, the large eyes and the sort of almost as though she's like a stereotype sort of figure of, a, of some sort of like nymph or something. And then when she when she is actually taking on the part, she becomes something totally new. She was really, I, I think she had a lot of fans during that period and her films were very popular at Cine Studio. The people actually really sought out her work. I think in this, she was really perfectly cast. I can imagine that the casting, that's one of the interesting things about Kubrick actually is how he did casting and how he found the people, the exact people he wanted. He really, he didn't compromise. And I think that the choices he made in The Shining are really remarkable because it did create something so intense and something that really sticks with you. And Shelley Duvall opposite Jack Nicholson was really an incredible pairing. I, I can't, I was trying to think of something else, another film that, that did that, but I can't think of one. So uh, just to make sure that Shelley Duvall had no trouble acting downtrodden, David Kubrick saw to it that she was essentially, I mean, and she was in on this apparently, but she was sort of mistreated on the set, not just by Kubrick, but by everybody, just so she would feel whipped in the way that she, that character needed to be whipped. Yes, don't be too nice to Shelley, he would instruct the crew. And when Kubrick's daughter Vivian made a, a film about, a documentary film about the making of The Shining, we have scenes of him uh, um, terrorizing Shelley. I think terrorizing is a bit of an overstatement. But she did say that she learned more, much more, about acting from Kubrick than she had from Robert Altman, whose movies she had been in and been a great success in before The Shining. So she certainly knew what he was up to, for sure. You know, it's also, I think, James, a story about writing and writers, you know, and, and I'm sure King intended it that way. Because first of all, the fear in every family, in every nuclear family, is that somebody isn't telling you something really important. Where does dad really go all day? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> uh, well, you know, what's in that bottle that mom drinks out of in the bathroom when she thinks we're not looking? Or what, you know, there's always that fear that somebody's not telling us something. And then with writers, it's always a little suspicious because what the hell are they really doing? 
you know, it doesn't even sound like they're typing or whatever. To me, that's maybe another subtext here, right? That the Jack claims he's working on a book and he's in fact writing the same sentence over and over again. That's clearly a comedy about writers, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely it is. It is confirming the suspicion that the writer isn't really writing. I mean, I think that's one of the sort of disturbing jokes in a way that, uh, that Kubrick is very good at, sort of like taking away the expectation and poking fun at the very thing that you would be most suspicious of. And I think that also is probably the probably one of the real irritants that Stephen King realized too, that this was a, it, it was kind of a hit on that whole thing. And I can imagine Stephen King with his ego, probably it, it was a direct hit. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, whether the f*** you hear me doing in here, when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. How do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. There's a trope that's also invoked in The Shining that's come into a lot of, uh, under a lot of criticism over the years. The so-called magical Negro, Scatman Crothers, plays this black character who seems to have access to other levels of truth, other insights. You know, Doc, when something happens, it can leave a trace of itself behind. Say, like, if someone burns toast, well... Maybe things that happen leave other kind of traces behind. Not things that anyone can notice, but things that people who shine can see. I think, well, I, I mean, I'm fairly certain that's meant to be a compliment, but as scholars, especially African-American scholars, have wrestled with that trope, they've been less comfortable with that idea. I'm not sure what I think about that in the sense that is it a blot on the movie? It's hard for me to think of it as a blot on the movie. Because it's hard um, to imagine the movie without him. It's hard to imagine the movie without right. Scatman Crothers. It's it's such a marvelous performance and it seems it fits in completely with Kubrick's vision. You know, I understand these cultural anxieties, but they tend also to to move with the times so that, you know, I think that Kubrick did very firmly intend to give this character the stage or, or the screen in the way he did. It was a very commanding figure, genial, and yet also very stern in a way that I think is fascinating. Mr. Allen, what is in room 237? Nothing. There ain't nothing in room 237. But you ain't got no business going in there anyway. So stay out. You understand? Stay out. So I don't think the character is a stereotype, I guess is what I'm trying to say. All right, we have to stop there. We're going to spend some time on Eyes Wide Shut. And I also want to wrap into this conversation also the, the frequently leveled charge that there's something of a misogynist lurking inside Stanley Kubrick or somebody warning us about misogyny. That's the other possibility.
So, yes, it is time now to take off your COVID mask, put on your Comedia del Arte mask instead, because we're about to talk about Eyes Wide Shut. Still with us, David McKicks, who's Moore's Distinguished Professor of English, University of Houston, the author of Stanley Kubrick, American filmmaker James Hanley, co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. They have both already dilated upon the pleasures and virtues of Eyes Wide Shut. But here's the real expert, Lila Shapiro, senior reporter at New York Magazine and Vulture, where she wrote a piece called What I Learned After Watching Eyes Wide Shut 100 Times. Lila Shapiro, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Sorry for laughing as I said that. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it's a it's a very common reaction. There's laughter and then curiosity and also bewilderment. So before we allow you to bewilder us, Maybe, David, if you could you like in 30 to 60 seconds kind of remind people what Eyes Wide Shut is? OK, so Eyes Wide Shut is about a man and a woman. <laughs> it's about a marriage. And Kubrick, people don't think of him as a director focused on marriage. But three of his great movies, Barry Lyndon, The Shining and Eyes Wide Shut, do depict a marriage. Women don't. They basically just don't think like that. Millions of years of evolution, right? Right? Men have to stick it in every place they can, but for women, women it is just about security and commitment and whatever the f*** else. A little oversimplified, Alice, but yes, something like that. If you men only knew. So, in Eyes Wide Shut, a man suddenly discovers that his wife, played by Nicole Kidman, Tom Cruise's real-life wife, he discovers that she has a sexual fantasy life. He finds himself completely excluded. He's plunged into jealousy by the thought of her fantasy about a naval officer on their previous summer's vacation. So he goes out and he wanders the streets of New York trying to have a trying and failing to have a sexual encounter. He finally winds up at an orgy, which is designed for and orchestrated by the rich and powerful. And there he runs into considerable trouble. He, he risks his life. He's threatened with, with death if he uh, reveals the secrets of this cult. At the end of the movie, long story short, the two are reconciled. And we have what, to my mind, I think Lila might disagree, we have a version of the Hollywood comedy of remarriage that is a couple on the rocks or tormented by some kind of strain is reunited at the end. So much to say about this, but certainly, you know, nobody even knew the name Jeffrey Epstein at the time. So Lila, why did you watch, why did you watch this movie 100 times? Everyone is dying to know. You know, it's, it's a difficult question to answer. I remember in an earlier draft of my essay, I had like included some more context about what was going on in my life at the time when I started watching it. And then my editor cut it. And I was like, I feel like we need this because otherwise no one will understand, you know, why I watched it so many times. And she was like, I don't know that anyone will be able to really understand it regardless of the context you include. <laughs> but I mean, in answer, you know, I had been recently married myself when I began my immersion. And my my husband, who's a reporter, he was in Alaska for a month, and I was home working on a novel. And I've, al I've always been a writer who sort of writes with stuff going on in the background. But I think I, 
I, I was working on a part of my novel that had a, a party and an orgy scene in it. So I sort of originally turned to it because I was curious about it. I had seen it in theaters. I remember liking about it, but I hadn't watched it since. And I found something just like intensely hypnotic about about the movie, kind of from those opening the opening bars of the score that just sort of put me into this creative trance state that really became very productive for me. So I would watch it a lot, but then I would also be like writing as I was, as I was watching. So that's 267 hours of your life. You'll never get back. Um, (laughs) But I'm sure you found all the Easter eggs anyway. So, you know, we have to just talk a little bit and, and we only have about three and a half minutes left. And this is a big topic. But, you know, you know, Nicole Kidman actually has this incredibly memorable speech in this. But, you know, David, there is, you know, there are charges that there's something very sexless in general about Kubrick. And even this movie about sex is kind of oddly sexless. And then maybe he's a little bit of a misogynist. There aren't a lot of great women's roles in the whole oeuvre. How do you respond to that? that that's certainly true that the greatest role for a woman in all of Kubrick's work is Alice, played by Nicole Kidman in Eyes Wide Shut. What you see much more often is the figure of a woman who is somehow central, you know, who is crucial, but who occupies very little screen time. In the previous movie, Full Metal Jacket, we see the resurrection of Joker. You know, he says that he is now happy at the end of the movie. What has he just done? He's just shot a teenage Vietnamese sniper. He's executed her, the horrifying end of the movie. And, you know, we have this sort of weird, ironic, black humor aspect to it. At the end of Eyes Wide Shut, we have the resurrection of a marriage, the man and the woman. And of course, famously, the woman has the last word of the movie. And it's a word that I probably shouldn't say on Connecticut Public Radio. But she is the guide here. And I think If we had time, I could talk a lot about Kubrick's own marriage to a wonderful woman, Christiane, for the last 40 years of his life. And that experience certainly guided him towards what you see in Eyes Wide Shut, his fullest depiction of a marriage. So we're almost out of time, and I'm embarrassed that I can't switch back to James here. But Lila, I feel like since we just brought up the representation of women, you should get the last word here. So I don't know. What's what's your ultimate takeaway after all that? What's... Would you recommend this movie to another woman? That's how I'll ask it. Yes, I, I definitely would. I mean, I think Alice is an incredibly compelling character and really like the center of the movie in 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 so many ways. I mean, she's like the one with the knowledge. She She's almost like a goddess in some ways, like in terms of how all-knowing she is and sort of how, you know, life-changing her like pronouncements are. And I don't, I don't see it as a misogynist film at all. I mean, I think it's about misogyny, but I don't think that like the film itself is misogynistic. No, um, and, and I think also, you know, she's not only a goddess, but she's a goddess married to an elf. This is the movie that really sort of illustrates the Kidman crew's height disparity and makes no attempt to conceal it a couple of times. We're going to have to stop there, but thanks very much to all of our wonderful guests, to David McKicks, James Hanley, Lila Shapiro. Thanks to Jonathan McNichol for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow unless, for some reason, we, we don't show up. <laughs>